0: Or go to Amazon.com slash news ad free. That's Amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. There should be no expectation on behalf of the premiers and the chief ministers that when we reach those targets of 70 and 80 percent, the scale of our economic support will continue in the way that it has.
1: Uh, welcome, lovely people of the podcast, to the show. You are with Catherine Murphy, the host and political editor of Guardian Australia, and with me is Scott Morrison's roommate.
0: Well, who could that be? <laughs> <laughs> Good the afternoon. Nice yes. to be with you, Catherine. Well,
1: why don't you introduce yourself?
0: Uh, my name is Josh Friedenberg. Um, I've been a House guest in the Parliament for just over 10 years now and uh, represent the electorate of Kewong. Um, I feel very privileged to be the deputy leader of the <coughs> Liberal Party, should I say it on a, on a Guardian it's podcast? It's all right. Nothing and,
1: explodes. It's and, fine. And the
0: Treasurer um, of Australia, which is... Um, Challenging at the best of times, not least of which during a pandemic. Right, at the
1: moment, uh, just, uh, we're not going to linger long on your house visit at the lodge, but it's so deeply weird. I have to ask you a couple of questions about it. Um, is it he... that
0: you and Nikki Satter both think that?
1: No, no. Well, it's <laughs> like it is. I'm sorry. Look, I, we should we should tell the listeners actually because the context is relevant that in Canberra, in the fly-in, fly-out culture, there is a there is a culture of share houses in Canberra amongst parliamentarians. So it's not quite as weird as it would appear to the rest of the universe. But nonetheless, it is deeply weird that you are bunking in with the Prime Minister. So my questions are, is he surveilling you or are you surveilling him?
0: Well, I uh, accepted his generous invitation and, you know, it was a pretty special opportunity um, because... Uh, it's not only uh, a good opportunity to work and talk with him um, about a lot of the issues that we're dealing with, but it was also it's amazing. It's got amazing history, the lodge, and it's a special place, and the bed's no bigger than I would not have in my normal abode, but um, the... The, uh, the meal sizes are a little bit bigger, but other than that, um, I spend most of my time actually um, in and out of Parliament House still, but because of the fact that the ACT is in lockdown, uh, you, you're not going out as you normally would, you're not associating... Uh, with colleagues as you normally would, and and so uh, I suppose when he's in a big house like that by himself, he, he was happy to have company, and you know we watch a bit of TV, um, eat dinner together, uh, play a bit of pool, um, but largely uh, we spend most of our time uh, actually in the office.
1: But he invited you, sorry, we we aren't going to stay here forever, even though it sounds like we are. We aren't. So he invited you, and and you don't think that's weird
0: at all? No, I don't. Um, you know. Pandemics are weird, if you if you ask me, uh, because certainly um, this one doesn't come a, come a, a around very often. And um, he's in the house um, by himself, like me. We're away from our family and our children and uh, and our wives, and so this is uh, you know a good opportunity to at least have some friendship. Um, in what is can normally be quite a lonely place. Um, okay. I'll, I'll, I'll cease further let Pass or
1: fail? <laughs> well, I still think it's really deeply weird. Uh, but let's move on to uh, well, portfolio areas and areas where you've sort of uh, picked up arguments and run with them, I suppose, over the last couple of weeks in particular. Mm. Uh, you've become, well, I shouldn't say you've become because you've actually been there the whole time, really, but... You're becoming more forthright as the living with COVID evangelist of the government. I'll put it that way. Uh, why?
0: Well, evangelical is not necessarily a term. That,
1: no, um, but no, you possibly would, you,
0: you would uh, acquaint with me. But but the reality is, uh, we're in a very different place as a country this year compared to last year. Uh, last year there was no vaccine. This year there is. Uh, the number of people who are receiving the vaccine is. Growing by the day, more than 300,000 by the day. And based on a you know, world leading uh, report and a set of modelling by the Doherty Institute, we've now got targets of 70 and 80% where we can shoot for and reach and therefore ease restrictions after that. And my view is that we have to learn to live with COVID because no country has been able to eliminate it. And based on the best medical advice to us right now, uh, we're not about to eliminate it. So it's a question of adjusting uh, to to its reality. And that means getting as many people vaccinated as soon as possible, um, having a set of restrictions that are still in place, but they're not as stringent as the lockdowns we're seeing now in New South Wales, Victoria and the ACT. And by doing so, um, we can resume our life in a COVID-safe way. Yeah. And that means kids going back to school and businesses reopening. Do you think,
1: though, um, obviously um, a number of parliamentarians are reporting frustration building up in the two lockdown states yeah, in New South that. Wales and Victoria, yeah. right? Yeah. Do you think people... Frustration,
0: weariness, fatigue, all of that. Yeah,
1: all of that, right? But do you think people in Queensland and WA and Tasmania and uh, and South Australia want to
0: live with COVID? I do, um, in the sense that they understand that reality that you can't eliminate it. But whether they want to move to that place as fast as those in New South Wales and Victoria is is a different question. And I suspect Victor- New South Wales will get there first. Um, Victoria will look very closely at the New South Wales experience and the ability of their health system to cope with those increased cases and the easing of restrictions. Then I think they follow and South Australia and 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 then other states follow after that. Um I think Western Australia will be a hard nut to crack in in respect of getting them to ease the restrictions, particularly the borders, um, the border closures. Um, but again, it's an inevitability in my mind. And to think that every business in WA is doing well at the moment is wrong. We just announced a package of support for tourism businesses in partnership with the McGowan government in Western Australia, because a lot of those businesses are really hurting because of the border closures. So I don't think the economy can sustain the level of economic support we're providing right now indefinitely. Certainly not well beyond when we get to those seventy and eighty percent targets. And to be honest, Catherine, I actually think the well-being of Australians, uh, um, you know, is so is so important here to state the obvious. But the the health outcome of Preventing COVID is not the only one that should be front of mind. We've got to be thinking about the mental health impacts of the lockdowns. And yes, I'm a product of the Victorian experience in in some respects, or my perspective is. And the fact that they've had more than 200 days of lockdown, the fact that kids have not been in the in the classroom, is really really um, significant. And you know, I've got a GP in my own electorate. Who talks about the fact that giving kids as young as 12 antidepressants mm. because they're really struggling? And you and I have talked about this. Yeah. And so we I have. think it's about getting the balance right.
1: No, no, no. And it's, it's uh, I, I completely acknowledge that uh, lockdowns are not a cost free strategy, either in dollars or in mental health terms. But the problem the government's got, isn't it, uh, is you've spent effectively 18 months with the mantra being lives and livelihoods, right? That has been a bulletproof political mantra for you guys. That has been a statement of your priorities. Now you're trying to pick the country up and put it down in a different place, a place where there is a higher level of comfort with hospitalisations, with illness, with death. We've not geared ourselves for that in Australia, in in the US, they certainly have. In in the UK, they have. This is. Do you acknowledge that this is this, that this is very politically risky for the government at this point?
0: Well, I acknowledge that it's a new conversation, and that some people will be uncomfortable with that, but also many uh, will understand that is the reality with which we which, which we confront. And um, when you hear the Doherty Institute say zero COVID forever is unrealistic. Um, you know, it's not just the politicians who are saying learn to live with COVID. It's actually the medical experts. And people turn on their TVs and they see, you know, full houses at the uh, at the sporting stadiums in the US or the UK. And they say, well, yes, they've got a high vaccination rate, but when are we going to join mm, sure. um, that rite of passage, if you like? And, and so it is a conversation we have to have. And that's why I've been at least very upfront. There's going to be deaths, tragic as they are, there's going to be more people with severe illness and there will be more cases, but there is no alternative but to open up when it is safe to do so, and that's where the Doherty work, I think, comes into play.
1: Yeah, and you have been commendably honest. You are calling it as it is. What What is your personal level of comfort of, of with deaths? How many deaths would you be comfortable with?
0: Well, again, it's based on what the Doherty Institute says it happens at 70 and 80%, and they distinguish between sort of optimal health orders or minimal health orders, and the rate of death comes down substantially uh, as a result of having optimal health orders. Now, they're optimal health orders short of lockdowns, um, obviously uh uh, there's mask wearing and there's social distancing yeah. and Different hygiene packages. practices and yeah, all yeah. of those sort yeah, of things. Yeah, but
1: you're avoiding the question. You give me a number. Is it is it the amount of people who die of the flu every year? Is it more than that? Is it less than that? Like what? It's it's fine. You yeah. see what my point is? It's yeah. fine to say we've got to be more comfortable with deaths and hospitalisations, mm. but it's kind of an abstract concept unless you're prepared to put a number on it. So what's the number?
0: Well, again. Um, Influenza is instructive, because that is what again Doherty referenced, and they said Australia has two hundred thousand cases of influenza each year and six hundred deaths, and they've pointed out how we've learned to live with that. Now, in their report that came out in um, on the you know late late August twenty third of August, they said very clearly um, that at seventy percent vaccination coverage, um, they could see. With optimal public health measures and no lockdowns, that infections could be relate, reduced to just under three thousand, and they reference thirteen deaths. Now that number um, may or may not end up being accurate. Modelling, uh, <laughs> modelling, well, really it, it
1: reflects it, well, but, it reflects the inputs. But,
0: really... but, it, but exactly, it reflects the inputs. But they did say, because this has obviously been a topic of great discussion, what happens when you've got. Hundreds, if not thousands, of cases, and you start easing restrictions. And they've made the very valid point that whether you start with 30 cases or 800 cases, it's still safe to open at those numbers of vaccinations. They
1: do say, though, at the 70% threshold, they said it in their first report, and I gather they've said it in the recut version, that uh, caution is required at 70%. Now, you said very recently...
0: Caution is always important.
1: Obviously, but, but you said recently that state and territory leaders should yes. not just assume that the money tree... Down there in the courtyard, that has funded JobKeeper and JobSeeker and all this other it's truck. It's been growing loans. profusely. Well, it's indeed. A it's, it's a branches
0: big, have been coming off every single it day. Is, it
1: is a big money tree. You've said basically the money tree is, you shouldn't assume the money tree's there at 70%. Now, hang on a minute. That doesn't really align with what Doherty's saying. Doherty's saying at 70%, you've got to be cautious. You've got to be quite cautious. Lockdowns are part of the mix. Lockdowns may persist at 70 percent. So
0: are you serious? Well, what well firstly what Doherty actually said was that at seventy percent and eighty percent, um, that stringent lockdowns are unlikely. That were their words. They didn't say you would eradicate it, um, lockdowns, um, but they said they were unlikely. What I was and have been consistently saying and say again today, is that there should be no expectation on behalf of the premiers and the chief ministers that when we reach those targets of seventy and 80%, the scale of our economic support will continue in the way that it has. And as you know, we've we've pivoted in our economic support uh, from the JobKeeper programs and the cash flow yeah. boosts and the 750 to payments, whatever the new payments to now a COVID yep. disaster payment, which is based on hours um, of work that have been lost, but also the the economic support for small business, which we've done on a 50-50 basis with all the states and territories, Um when we get to those seventy and eighty percent, we're really going to be looking to the states and the territories to fulfil that agreement that they reached at national cabinet.
1: Look, going to going to the treasury work, which actually hasn't had as much publicity as yes. the Doherty work, but it's actually really interesting. It I is. I read it for really for the first time this week properly. Yes. Now, treasury says, um, you know that the that the lowest cost. You know, response to the pandemic is is maintaining a public health response. First point. The other thing that's really interesting to me is in their analysis, they did not uh, run a scenario about Australia's health system having a significant breach in an outbreak. Now, that seems to me to be an entirely realistic scenario if you look at what's playing out in Sydney at the moment. We've got ambulances ramping, not able to get into hospitals. Mm-hmm. We've, like, this, isn't a, this isn't hysteria, mm-hmm. right? This is an actual present risk mm-hmm. associated with the transition that you're currently working on. Mm-hmm. Treasury didn't look at that, but they said the cost of that would be extremely significant mm-hmm. in the event that that happened. So do you accept that this is a balance that you can't just wave your wand, remove all the restrictions because, you know, getting back to your portfolio interest, which is different, obviously, to your mm-hmm. interest as a human being, a Victorian, yep. a father, a yep. friend, yep. all of that, yeah. that this is a really finely balanced set of decisions.
0: I agree. And you have to be uh, flexible uh, to adapt to new sets of circumstances when they arise. What was interesting about the Treasury analysis was that even when you get to those 70 and 80% targets, you are still going to require some restrictions, yeah. and they're still going to cost the economy. yeah. So at 70%, Treasury say $200 million a week. Right now, we're seeing $2 billion a week being lost in terms of economic activity as a result of the lockdowns in our biggest two states. Um, so, the cost does come down, um, but it's not um, it doesn't come down to zero. Um, and it is about getting the balance right. And there is no rule book. You and I don't know if there's going to be a new variant of the strain as we turn after turn no. into a new year after Christmas. No or
1: even sooner. not I mean I don't want to depress everybody and it's... and we
0: shouldn't because. But, no. And can I just say, and I think that's a really important point. The reason why this plan is so important, and sticking to it is so important, is because we have to give people hope. And people are getting the jab, yes, to protect themselves and to protect their families. But they're also expecting something in return. And that is their lives back in a COVID safe way. And it's, it's no coincidence that the fastest um, increase in vaccinations are in the lockdown states in New South Wales and Victoria, because these people are living it and breathing it, and they want to get out of it. And if you are sitting in Queensland and Western Australia and think that you can live COVID-free or without lockdowns for the next six months, you're wrong, because it could very easily get over a border and come into your state. So the only long-term solution is to get vaccinated and then to have the optimal restrictions in place to live with COVID safely.
1: Tell me what you've learned. Yep. During this pandemic, because, well, well I, I know, yes. and you and I do speak regularly. Yeah. Uh, but I'm what? It, what's the biggest thing you've learned?
0: Well, I've learnt lots of things. Um, um, the first is you do have to move quickly in a in a pandemic, um, where we did that early on. For example, closing the international borders, we we uh, I think got a um, a good dividend for the country. Through doing that, as well as that on the economic um, on the economic side uh, of our response, for example, when we brought in JobKeeper, the immediate improvement in in consumer confidence and business confidence uh, was obvious. Um, but I suppose the the biggest thing, if you want me to single out one, mm. it's that you need to be able to adapt to changing circumstances, mm. because things change very quickly. and if your policies are set and forget, you, you quickly get swamped. Now in order to adapt, you have to have the right internal processes and we have been meeting you know, every day, NSEs, ERCs, cabinet meetings my, with my own department. and the public service have been brilliant and professional uh, and as you would expect nonpartisan. And so being able to rely on those experts, whether they're health or economic experts, um, has been a really important part of the national response. And we have been taking the advice, and I think that advice has served the country well.
1: And, uh, and it's sort of interesting to me, there's, there's always been this sort of strange um, balancing act, uh, which is sort of more the Prime Minister's than yours, but, you know, given your roommates... Sorry, had to. Um, but no, this this idea that uh, there's been a bit of a there's been some tension in the government, largely sotto voce, but about the prime minister being the prime minister of the premiers, or the prime minister of his own cabinet, his own party room, all of that sort of stuff. Mm. have you learnt more about balancing those imperatives as you've gone along?
0: Well, the premiers and the chief ministers have been elevated in this in this crisis. Well, they're the ones with the power. Constitutionally, they've got the power around public health orders and it's become sort of, you know, compulsory viewing for many, many uh, Victorians or people in New South Wales to turn on and find the latest new new information from their premiers. Um, And that is different to, I think, how politics has operated in the past. I think pre-pandemic you would have struggled to get someone in Queensland who could name... The premier in, you know, WA yeah. or Victoria, oh, and vice versa. Yep. Yeah, but they have become household names. The other thing is, I think prior to this pandemic, people, certainly the feedback I've had is people have expected in their lives that the big decisions affecting them have been made by the federal government, even though we know state governments yeah. are a critical in everything from health and education to law and order and and particularly service delivery. Yeah. But that has been turned on its head in this crisis. And suddenly, um, state premiers and and chief ministers and, should I dare say it, chief medical officers have had this incredible... Yeah, presence. uh, ...presence and power. And it's been very frustrating for a lot of people. Uh, Certainly the ones who have contacted me say, well, why can't you fix this? Yeah. Why can't you get a nationally consistent approach? you? Yeah. a lot you of MPs are over- reporting Yeah, this. why can't yeah. you just override the, the state orders? Yeah, why don't you get the premiers in hand? Yeah, mm. and, and, and it, it doesn't work like that. And I think that has been frustrating for a lot of people, particularly exacerbated by those who have been subject to lockdowns mm. and, you know, living um, with their freedoms curtailed. Do I think that becomes a permanent feature of our political system? No. Um, I do think we can get back to where we were um, post-pandemic. Although there's now a broader question, which is how long will this pandemic be with us? And neither you or I can answer that definitively. I suspect it's going to be around for some time and it's probably not the last pandemic either. No. And so when I think about the world post-COVID, living with COVID, it is with health um, uh, and medical challenges and and the medical advice and all of that being, you know, front and centre to a lot of decision-making in the future.
1: Tell me, in terms of learning, um, would you, uh, if you had your time over structure JobKeeper differently because the impression people in the community have got now is that a whole lot of companies who didn't need cash... Um, Basically got a massive flotation through their balance sheets as a consequence of that program. You haven't clawed it back, they've been allowed to trouser it. Would you do it differently if you had your time over?
0: Well I'm really glad you've asked me that question because it gives me an opportunity to to explain to the to the listeners why we did what we did with JobKeeper and and what I and what I think about the program. Go back to when we introduced it and there were tens of thousands hundreds of thousands of people lining up outside Centrelink and people were not only fearful of losing their job but fearful of losing their homes. And everyone was saying it was reminiscent of the Great Depression. We then responded with JobKeeper, which is not, you know, um, the default position of a Liberal Party treasurer. certainly uh, not. An an economy-wide, nationwide uh, wage subsidy at a flat rate of $1,500. It had the immediate... Uh, effect of putting a safety net under the economy, keeping people formally connected to their employer, and saying to businesses, we have your back. And we initially did it for six months only. But when we talked earlier about being flexible and able to to readjust, well, we extended it for another six months. Now, we based it on an anticipated decline in turnover for the first six months, The second six months were based on an actual decline in turnover. The reason why we did that at the time, based on advice, was that if we had tried to configure the the scheme based on a proportion of someone's income or indeed of an actual decline, it could have taken months to get the money out the door. And it would have then um, delayed what was a vitally important No, no, no,
1: I totally accept all that. So that's
0: why we did the anticipated decline. Yeah. Now, Treasury's analysis of what happened, for example, in April is that the average decline was 37% when you had to have an anticipated decline of 30%. So I have no doubt that businesses who needed JobKeeper, bearing in mind 98% were small and medium-sized businesses, received it. But have some businesses got through this crisis... Very strongly, have they paid dividends? Have they paid bonuses? Yes. Should they pay back JobKeeper? Absolutely. If they're in the ability, if they've got the ability to pay it back, they should. Well, why not make them? Because we don't retrospectively change tax laws based on um, to 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 claw money back from people who entered into a program in good faith based on the rules for eligibility at that time.
1: But you claw back, you know, debt from welfare recipients and... I
0: I, I, I think that's a... I really do feel like that's a false analogy because one is in accordance with the law, the other is not. Now, you can have a debate about whether that anticipated decline in turnover should have been only for three months, not six months as mm, we did. mm. We can have that debate. But based on what I know, Catherine, at that time, don't forget in the June quarter economic growth fell by 7% um, across the country, record amounts. Um, we saw the unemployment rate subsequently reach 7.4%. Um, it's now 4.6%. Um, and, you know, Australia was looking at the edge of the economic abyss, and that's why we responded the way we did. So I, I, I am actually in the camp, as you would not be surprised, of saying I'm very proud of what JobKeeper did for the economy and what you cannot, what you cannot take away from JobKeeper and the other economic supports is that they ensured a very strong economic rebound. Yeah. And if you ask me what has the, been the biggest achievement on the economic side, it's been preventing the long term scarring of the labour market where you would have seen a lot of people unemployed for a long time as we saw after the 80s and 90s recession.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, we're, we're, on the clock, sadly, I'd go. I'd go a bit more. We're happy to. No, no. Well, I would go a bit more on on that issue. But let's. Uh, uh, well, actually, no, no. Let's let's because I want to take you to energy and climate in a minute, which is an area of mutual interest. Well, it's an obsession of mine, and an, and an issue of. Well, more than glancing interest of yours. Well, let's, we were
0: talking about scarring just before. Well, no. Well, exactly. No. Well, well, like, well. Exactly.
1: <laughs> exactly. No, but just on the job keep question, just yes. one thing, right? So, okay. So you've explained your rationale. Yes. Um, but my question was a simple one. Yes. If you had your time over again, would you do it the same?
0: I don't regret what we did at that time.
1: So is that no because, or because, yes? Well, or? Because
0: well, firstly, you can't have twenty twenty hindsight. In a crisis such as this, I stand by what we did, and I think we did we made the right decisions. Should some businesses, if they can, pay that money back, absolutely. First to say that.
1: Have you rung any but of them and said pay it back? Have you actually done that?
0: I, I've said it very publicly.
1: No, no, but um, to them,
0: like. Well, where? I don't go. I don't normally ring up businesses and say. Um, I, I looked at your um, <laughs> your latest profit and loss. Scheme. By the way, if you are a publicly listed company, you're required to disclose it, yeah. and that's how we know yes. um, how um, um, how those particular companies uh, how much they've received from JobKeeper because, as you would expect and appreciate, uh, tax information is is subject to the privacy laws, and only the tax office are the ones who need to know. Um, but Um, The program has been a great success. It was described as a remarkable program by the Reserve Bank Governor and it has been a key reason why our economy has bounced back so strongly.
1: Let's do energy and climate now. Do uh, do you think that global capital has made a choice?
0: I definitely think um, climate is influencing global capital markets in a significant way. Um, We're now starting to see priced-in transition risk, Physical risk, Um, it's affecting the asset allocation uh, across the uh, global capital markets. Um, We're going to see more and more uh, climate-related or uh, disclosure, Uh, and, you know, regulatory agencies are across that both here and overseas. Um, Material risks to businesses, Um, but... This is something that is is moving pretty rapidly. I had a conversation not that long ago with Mark Carney, who, as you know, is the former governor of the Bank of England and mm-hmm. he's been very engaged in this program and um, it was a very interesting discussion to, to sort of swap notes. I talked to the central bank governor, Phil Lowe. He says that it's a major topic at central bank governors' meetings. Mm-hmm. So, yes, um, it is being uh it is influencing in a significant way uh global capital.
1: Is it as Guy DeBell says a risk to financial stability?
0: Well I think it's it's a factor in financial markets. Um you know Guy De Bell's well placed as the deputy governor of the Reserve Bank. Quite to a bright talk about, fellow yeah and yeah and has done a very good job. So it is a it is a factor uh, behind financial stability but um it's it's again being priced in now started to be priced in to decision making
1: do you think that the government i mean the prime minister has hinted as much should the government take an updated 2030 target to uh, the IP, the uh, uh, the cop in glasgow in november
0: i'm very um I'm very comfortable with the target that we've got, the 26 to 28% reduction by 2030 Can on our 2005 level.
1: Can you do better with well, the Well, again,
0: um, the transition is underway. You talk about transitions in capital markets. The transition is underway in the domestic energy market, and we are on track not just to meet, but to actually beat that 26 to 28% target. Not at the moment. You're not. Well... That you, you can debate that. No, no, I just um, look
1: at the numbers, but, the, governments, the government, the official data. Well,
0: I, I can tell you um, that uh, in the last two years, we've taken the equivalent of 15 million cars off the road. Um, I can tell you that um, we are seeing renewable energy being installed on a per capita basis faster than you see in New Zealand, faster than Japan, faster than the United States, um, faster than um, many other comparable economies. Um, you know the numbers, uh, Catherine. One in four uh, households, um, you know, have rooftop solar. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got a technology investment roadmap. We're investing in everything from snowy. Hydro yep. oh, 2.0 to, to to more interconnectors to bring, you know, the, the great renewable resource in Tasmania here to the mainland. Battery of the nation. Um, and battery of the nation. All those things that I've been involved in. But there are also real issues about the reliability of the grid as this transition takes place. Uh, you know, probably a lot of the listeners today won't like our focus on gas, but that is a transition fuel. And you do need um, that baseload power in the system. And so... The combination of batteries, pumped hydro, um, gas as a as a, as a peaker, uh, they're all important. And I, you know, I did, I did uh, mock the fact, it made light of the fact that I had a few scars for yes. this portfolio. I tried to do as well as I could in that. Um, I do think we made some gains. We did see a reliability guarantee come in place, but this issue has um has been you know perennially difficult uh, for successive governments and that's because I've never seen an issue in my political experience which has um, um, played to the extremes like this one, played to the extremes of the debate. Well,
1: well, it plays to the extremes because you guys weaponised it for 10
0: years. Well, um, I I don't accept that. Um, Well, you do really accept that, I think. But but, but anyway, look, the left and the right uh, on the extremes have, have played this. It's become obviously not just an economic battle or an engineering battle or a scientific battle. It's also become a bit of a cultural battle. But I do think that is changing. Um, maybe not as fast as some people would like it to be, maybe faster than others would like it to be. But it is changing and that is why um, we've been
1: no, no, doing I, what we're doing. I acknowledge that. You you know your constituents at home mm-hmm. in Kuyong, who you probably haven't seen for six months, but anyway, yeah. you'll get home at some point.
0: Um, you mean the ones who are chaining themselves to my doors? Well,
1: and, no, no. I, well, know, well, throwing
0: off flares and,
1: well, uh, you know, breaching
0: um, well, well, the peace. Yeah. Well,
1: well, it's. It, I think the ones you would be more concerned about actually would be um, thoughtful, caring, liberal yeah. voters who think you guys have been complete bastards on climate change. But anyway, putting that to one side... What's a, a number of your colleagues say to me? They don't want to do another election like they did in 2019 on climate change, where basically they were they felt under siege from reasonable minded people in the community who correctly understand, you know, your government's terrible record in this area. So, if the question, sorry, long preachy preamble, there is a question coming. Um, do you want to go home to your electors, to your constituents in Kuyong without a firm commitment to net zero by 2050?
0: Well, I said on budget night um that we want to get to uh, uh to net zero and preferably by 2050. Not and a commitment it? though, is it? But as you know, that's what our position has been and um you know, we continue to to roll out various policy initiatives that are designed to to lower the carbon footprint. Look, I take this issue very seriously. Um, I've been very consistent as well um, that climate change is real and that man is contributing to it and we need to take the relevant actions um, to reduce our emissions. Um, I think technology does offer a, an incredible opportunity and that's why we're investing in, in hydrogen as, as one source, um, uh, cleaner source of, of energy um, but we're doing a lot of other things as well. Um, and you, earlier in the conversation, referenced balance. Mm-hmm. Uh, that also applies to to the energy debate, which is when you transition an energy system, you need to be very conscious of how you ensure that it stays reliable and that uh, energy uh, prices remain affordable. And like... Hazelwood was a dirty old brown coal fire power station in Victoria, but when it it closed, we saw a massive spike in the wholesale price, which then flowed on into other states because it was nearly a quarter of Victoria's energy supply. You can't afford to see that again because you know who pays the highest price. Mm, sure, it's no. those disadvantaged in no, our community course. because their spend on of. On, on energy or electricity as a proportion of their disposable higher income is higher than wealthier people. So that's why we set up the Energy Security Board under the very strong leadership of Kerry Schott. Um, that is why, you know, I work closely with IEMO and, um, and uh and also the AEMC and all the other regulators in this space, the ACCC on, on the gas market, for example, to try to bring some regulatory rigor mm. to this process. No, no, and I- to take and to take you know, and to take the uh the experts' advice.
1: And because I've been quite combative, I'll also pay you the compliment of saying that you did, uh, to my observation, do everything you could while you held that portfolio in order to Move the dial, so I will give you that gesture of respect. Well, I tried to bring together
0: the stakeholders. You did, right? Yes, uh, and that included those uh, who were active um, uh, on the uh, on on the industry in industry, who who were the ultimate users of of energy, as well as those who were on the research side, and those who are on the regulatory side, and those who are advocating strongly for lower emissions.
1: Let's end with this. For your constituents, and and I imagine quite a number of them will listen to this conversation. I hope so. Your folks at home. Yeah. Are you going to, before the end of this year, mm-hmm. before Glasgow, are you going to bring them good news... <laughs> On a, but no, no, I'm serious. I'm not. I'm not being fatuous. I'm, I'm, no, I, uh, I know. Th- I know
0: where you're going, and 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 that's a very legitimate question. Look, we're having lots of internal conversations. I can't say any more than that. Uh, we're having lots of internal conversations about this issue. Um, the, the and there are lots of angles to it. You and I have discussed the global capital finance side yes. of it. That's one angle of it. Another is what does it mean for our export industries? Yes. And therefore, you know, jobs. Uh, Another is what does it mean for our electricity market and the affordability and the stability of that? Um, What does it mean for our general manufacturing approach in this country? There's lots and lots of angles to this, um, but there is progress and there are serious conversations across the board internally in government about um, this issue. Without giving that away, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of progress is being made, and it's, and and look, Catherine, you've seen politics as close up for, for centuries as, long as anyone, right? Yes. The way you move the dial on issues like this is you try to take people with you. If you try to storm the barricades, you never win. Not on this one, and. The people who want you to storm the barricades often don't have um, uh, certainly your best interests at heart, but don't have, I don't think, the nation's best interests at heart, because then they doom you to fail. So you've got to persuade, um, you've got to promote, you've got to bring an evidence-based approach. And of course, there's always a political lens to, to difficult issues like this, but There is progress being made and it's being made behind closed doors.
1: Okay, we'll keep you to progress being made. Josh Feidenberg, thank you for your time. I really do appreciate it. Thank you to Miles Martignoni, who's the EP of this show. And thank you to Karishma Luthier for cutting this episode. Uh, Thank you all you guys for listening. Uh, Obviously, share, review all of the usual drill. We'll be back next week.
0: Thanks, Catherine, and all the best to you and your pointy pen.